Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like The Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and then clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them in this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading them. In this week's show, we're going to start out talking about the big stories that continue to impact the nation, which are the ongoing protests and the response to the coronavirus. In the first segment, we're going to talk about the growing body count that's resulting from these protests that are continuing in cities across America. They started out in peace, but right now they're anything but that. And then we're going to cover the ramifications of that turn and how we got here. Next up in the next segment, we're going to cover the latest numbers on the coronavirus and go through some of the trend lines in this new surge that the country is experiencing. And we'll cover some of the potential causes for this new surge, sort of continuing on some of the thoughts we've covered for the last couple of weeks. And then finally, I'm going to wrap up with a new light item segment to avoid some of the crushing morosity that I think it feels like the show can end on covering some of these heavy topics. So I want to cover something a little bit lighter this week. So we're starting out this week going through the protests. And as I said at the top, these protests have a growing body count. And there are several events that you could point to to prove this point, but I'm just going to highlight two on today's show. And the first is the the murders and the assaults that you may have seen in, out of Chaz or CHOP, whatever they ended up calling it, in Seattle. A person was murdered there. And the latest story came out of Atlanta over this past weekend. An armed group of protesters... They re-erected barriers that had been torn down by police and were near a place where there was a previous shooting involved. And they stopped a car that that was attempting to turn into, I believe it was a Wendy's that was in this area. And the armed protesters ended up shooting into the car and killing a young eight year old black girl. So these are both instances where you have vigilante groups going out, both in Seattle and Atlanta, and attempting to push or form some form of vigilante justice. They've run off the police, and they are the new enforcers in these towns. And the thing about these new enforcers, since you've kicked out the police, which who are state actors, is that these new private enforcers, these private groups roaming around doing these sorts of things, they have zero constitutional restrictions on them. You have no rights in the face of these types of people. 
And they are more brutal, it turns out, than actual police. They're murdering children and people who are in these protest groups. Places ostensibly where you would expect to find people against guns and things of that nature. But these are this is what's happening. Now, it's fine, just on a, a top point here, that these people are carrying weapons. That's that part is fine and that's not the bothering bothersome part here. It's even fine that they're open and carrying. I've even though I you know, open carry is one of those things where I in constitutional principle I'm fine with it. I think of many people, white, black, whatever, they go beyond the pale with this and end up scaring people and that hurts Second Amendment rights and just trying to get better Second Amendment rights down the road. So while open carry is fully legal and I would support it, you can go too far with it. That's not what was happening here. These people were acting unlawfully and acting as a police force themselves, trying to erect barriers, trying to stop traffic, and illegally blocking and doing all these things according to the actual police force. And so these mob enforcers are just bad to have around. Now, I want you to think back for a moment, just before the George Floyd protest happened, and think back to the case of Ahmaud Arbery. Now, he was a black man who was chased down and hunted by three other white men who murdered him. And they were claiming some non-existent power to safekeep their neighborhood. They claimed that he was illegally sneaking around in houses or that he was potentially stealing things, things which, when you broke down their story, they had no knowledge of all, of what of anything that he had done, and they didn't have the power to stop him at the point of a weapon. And then when they threatened him, he had the right to self-defense. In fact, if you were breaking that down and he was armed, he had the absolute right to shoot all three of them. They were acting so egregiously. And then when we, you really go into the facts, they ended up shouting racial epithets at him after he was dying on the street. So you really get to the real point that these people were just racist and were being vigilantes. These, this kind of vigilantism is, in its essence, lawlessness. These are not people who are enforcing law. They are enforcing their own law. They're enforcing their law on their terms. You get no protections with them. There are no checks against their power. There's no balances against their power. There's nothing that stops them from doing whatever it is they deem is appropriate in a given situation. So you have to you have to look at what this is, what happened in Atlanta and what happened to Mont Arbery, what happened to this young girl, what happened to Amar Amon Arbery, and you have to look at what happened to them as lawlessness, unlawful vigilantes who shot and murdered them. We must restore actual law and order. I don't mean the term here that you see, you know, Donald Trump or any of these other politicians talking about. You have to restore actual law and order and work on reforming those laws and that order in order to fix what is happening here. We cannot have two forms of lawlessness running about unchecked and unanswered. 
protesters killing people are and are acting as vigilantes. That's the first part of the wrong here. And the police officers who are unaccountable add the other part of the unlawfulness that is occurring here. So you have police officers on one side who have been unaccountable in many cases, and then you have these vigilantes rising up on the other side, and it's both unlawfulness, and you have to get rid of both in order to restore a law and order. And just to give you an example of the police side of this, aside from everything else you may have seen, a young man named Elijah McLean, who was also shot by police officers, there was a picture that police officers posted of them reenacting the place where he was and smiling in the actor of where this where this kid died. And they reenacted it. They, they took a selfie and were smiling in it and everything. And that is the kind of activity that when you see this happen, it, it's not only it's just all awful, but it undermines the every notion of a legal police force that you can come up with because they are undercutting their own power and their just their reason for existence if they're doing that level of mockery of people who died under their care. That is something that should not be allowed to happen in any case, in any situation. So backing up here, the broader point when you look at all these protests, you look at these new, you look at people who are now dying as a result of these protesters, and then you look on the other side of the people who are dying at the hands of police, we're at a moment here of lawlessness because we cannot seriously change how policing is done. We have two unlawful and unaccountability things here happening here. You have the police who have acted unlawfully, and who have been unaccountable. And that, by itself, has brought lawlessness because people look at that and they do not see people who are enforcing the law, and so they do not see need to continue following the rule of law. And so when your people who are enforcing the law do not do it correctly and are unlawful themselves, then you lose all credibility for your law enforcement. So you have to... What restoring law and order means is that it means starting with the institutions responsible for upholding that order. And right now, no one's interested in doing that very thing. You have this really dumb cancel culture, can't culture war thing happening here, or where everybody's falling back on their talking points, talking about statues and monuments and everything else. And these are these are easy fallback positions for spineless cowards who are unwilling to address the real problems. Statues, flags, and symbols, they don't kill or create lawlessness. People do. In action to change how our society deals with these things does create the murders that we're witnessing here on both sides. And you have to fix this. You have to reel in the unaccountable police forces, and I've pitched out different proposals for doing that. And then you also have to start checking these protesters who are going out here and killing people and doing unlawful things themselves. These are not private police forces, and they should not be allowed to act as that. If you want to march and, and show off your, your, you know, your Second Amendment pride and open carry, that's fine, but you cannot act as vigilantes in our society. We are not based as having that as a legitimate police force in our culture.
And remember here, we're still watching protests happen. We're now well over a month post-George Floyd dying here, which was the flashpoint when the protest really took off. So when you start seeing these private vigilante groups start popping up and they start clashing and killing people, and you see no activity, nothing happening in reforming the police on the other side, it, it shows you a part of the country is burning, and underneath that burning there is a ton of tinder. And we are one major event away from seeing an explosion here because it just would not take much at this point. I know everything looks bad now, but it would not take much to make this spiral out of control even further because it's still limited in some of these larger cities, but it could easily spread further if you gave it even more fuel and it just wouldn't require as much to do that. You just, I mean, if you had another police involved shooting or a police involved death or you had something similar, it could cause a very major explosion on this point that would have caused far more violence than what we're witnessing now. You have to remember, people compare what we're going through to 1968. I know I've talked about that here some, but we are not at that level. We are not at that level. We're not experiencing anything close to what people went through in 1919 when you had the Red Summer or any of the race riot years before that. In 1968... Political assassinations were taking place. You had Robert F. Kennedy and and MLK who were both shot and assassinated. You had domestic terrorist groups, these, some of these really far left-wing groups, the, the Antifas of 1968. They were involved with domestic bombings. At one point, we had at least one kind of bombing happening every day. And I want you to think about that for a second and think about how what it would be like if a group of these people started bombing different parts of the country every day of the week for months and years on end. That's a kind of America that we have not seen in a generation, and maybe even further back than that. So everything seems bad when you look at a lot of this, but it can get much worse, and it wouldn't take a lot for us to get there. And the problem here is, is that we're seeing no real change happening. The whole defund the police thing is a, is a policy that just flat on its face and what they're doing is something that's not going to work. You have to actually start addressing the problems and the incentive structures here and change how policing actually happens. And I think part of that happens with you, you have to start dealing with police unions. You have to break apart their ability. You know, they block your capacity to get rid of bad police officers. You have to look and see if whether or not malpractice insurance, <coughs> excuse me, whether malpractice insurance would work here. And there's just a litany of other solutions that you could look to that would actually fix the problem that's in front of us. And none of that's happening. And everyone knows nothing is happening. And so when that's the, the overall nature of everything that's going on around here, that means that the, the flashpoint of what it would take to cause a greater explosion here than what we've already seen is very low. So we need to see real action and real policy changes happen, and we need to see them happen soon because we're not far away from seeing another major flashpoint here because between the virus and these protests, the entire country is on edge, very much on edge, and that's not going to change any time with any, without serious changes in policy by the people who are leading things. So that's where we are right now with this growing body count. We've got to see some major policy initiatives soon. I am not optimistic on that front. 
because on the national level, Democrats have walked away from everything. And so that means we're going into an election year where they're just going to campaign on whatever they've passed. So we're not going to see anything happen on a national level. And for a lot of states, you're not going to see them act either because they're not incentivized to move right now. So that is where we are. So keep watching the news for one of those major flashpoints because that will cause a greater explosion than what you're seeing now. So when we get back from when we get back from the break, we're going to cover the latest on the coronavirus and the latest numbers. All right, the top line numbers on the coronavirus. This week, we had a huge week of testing. We're up to 35.5 million tests overall. Just this week, that means we've run 4.5 million tests, which is an astounding number. We keep going up every single week. If you go go back and look at the month of June, as a total, we ran 15.2 million tests over the course of the entire month, which is an incredible number. Every single day this week, we were over 500,000. In fact, the lowest was still above 550,000. Six out of the seven days, we had 625,000 tests or more. So we were mostly above 600,000 this week. And on Friday, we had a one-day high, a one-day record here, of 721,000 tests run in one day. There was one point we couldn't even do that in the span of multiple weeks, and we did 721,000 in one day. There has been a massive boost in the number of tests being run across the country. I even noticed this happening in Tennessee, where I live. We had been doing between, even on a good day, we were doing 10 to 12,000 tests, and sometimes that would dip below to around seven or 8,000, which was a bad day. The past week or so, we've been doing twenty to 25,000 25, tests a day, which is an astounding number for a state like Tennessee. So the numbers here alone doubled, and we're seeing, a you know, in the last, it, they were going up last week, but before that, we were really lucky to hit 500,000 tests a day, and now we're doing over 600 and clearing 700,000. So it is it is conceivable that at some point in the next month, so at some point in July, we will do 1 million tests in a day. So, you know, just think about that for a second. Right now we're doing about 3 to 4 million tests a week and we could be doing 1 million a day. That is astounding. So, 4.5 million this week. If we're able to push up and do, you know, above that 700, you, we could be closing in on 5 million tests in the span of a week, which is a huge leap for what we're doing. So we did 15, over 15 million tests in, in June, and we're, we're easily going to clear that in July if we keep up this current pace, because it is just astounding the number of tests that we're doing right now. The death rate continues to fall, but it is slowing its descent. It's now sort of leveling out if you look at various charts of how it's how it's going down. So we're still seeing between two to 500 people die a day, but that is dropping. The troubling sign and the thing that everyone keeps looking at is that the seven-day average of positive tests continues to go up. We are right now at 7.6% of tests that come in are at mid are, are, are coming back positives. And that is up from our mid-June low which was the lowest point we hit at 4.4%. And our and the trend on that seven-day average is that it's going up. So 
we have new cases at mid-bay percentage numbers, and we have more tests and more positive in our higher positivity rate. That means we have and are going to have more positive cases than we did before, especially on the active side. We're going to have more active cases across the country than we did before. Uh, Former FDA head and current American Enterprise Institute fellow Scott Gottlieb says that we're catching probably about one out of every 10 cases right now. So even at our higher testing rates, we are still not catching everything. And he estimates that we have anywhere between 200 to 300,000 tests out there in the ether where we do not know about them. Now, it's likely if you're one of those, you are also asymptomatic. So you're not showing symptoms. That is the most, or they're very mild. So it's not on a health side, it's not very worrying, but you can spread it unknowingly. So that is the concerning part about that statistic. And we're not going to have a totally accurate idea of how many people had this thing until much further down the road when we're able to do a study and figure out exactly how much of the antibodies are floating around in the American average American's system and things of that nature. It took us a while after the swine flu scare in the early in their early on in the Obama administration to figure out exactly how well or not our response went to that. So it's going to be a while before we know exactly how this is going. The cases continue to skew younger, mostly in between the 21 to 40 age range, both on the new cases and the people who are being hospitalized. If you if you go back and look at the average age in the first major swing in March and April and in May, the average age of the person who was sick was or at least hospitalized was in their 50s and now you're looking at people who are in their mid to low 30s. So on just on a ba- basic, you know, outcome, you would expect better outcomes just because of that. And because of this, you know, because of the lower ages, the better medications we have and the treatment, like I said, we should emphasize on the word should here. We should see better mortality outcomes, meaning I wouldn't expect to see as many people dying as we did last time, just because we know a bit more what we're doing this time, and it's a younger age bracket who is dealing with it. But, like I said, should is doing a lot of the work in that in what in that that sentence there. We're still, at the soonest, we're still one week away from knowing anything about the mortality rate, and more likely it's another two to three weeks before knowing whether or not anything is happening here. Where a lot of people made mistakes before is that they looked at the initial surge of cases and assumed that the death rate would be correlated to that in immediate two to three weeks after that. And that's wrong. You don't see the death uptick happen after cases surges. You see the death uptick happen after hospitalization surges. And so it uh, it just takes a while to for that to work through. So we're we're probably more than likely two or three weeks away from seeing thing any any kind of data on the death number front. So hopefully that doesn't happen and we just see an uptick in the number of hospitalization numbers. Like I said, that's what we've seen so far. We've seen hospitalizations go up. 
Nationally, if you look at the COVID tracking project, they recently started putting current active hospitalizations back into their numbers. I haven't looked at the exact methodology they're using because the problem that they had before is they weren't, one, they weren't able to get all the states, and two, they couldn't get a clear definition of who was and wasn't an active case number. But I think they may have solved that now. And if they have, what we learn is that hospitalizations were at their lowest point in mid-June, on June 15th, to be precise. At that point, the active hospitalization rate fell to 27,778. So that's still a lot, but nationwide, it's still doable. Since then, though, we've climbed back up to 38,738 currently active hospitalization cases. So we're not trending in the right direction here. This is a new surge. This is a new curve that has to be flattened. So when you're looking and thinking about outcomes here, you have to take into account all of these different factors. We definitely have more people in the hospital right now. And even though it's a younger age bracket, there's still more people in the hospital. And and the, the threat that this poses is that your entire system gets overwhelmed because I'm just looking at this as overall hospitalization numbers across the country, but it's not hitting across the country in the same way. It's not an even spread. It's hitting certain places harder than others. So Arizona is really probably the main place right now that is that truly does have a, a true spike where the numbers have skyrocketed up. It's been exponential, and they have to flatten that somehow. Some of these other p- cases, places like Texas and Florida, they definitely are seeing a spike but it's not beyond their capacity to deal with. I think one of the ironies is how hard Florida has been hit, and they've handled this far better than places like New York. And you have to also remember this. Florida has more people living in it than New York. That may surprise some people, but that is true. Florida is the more populous state compared between the two, and they've handled this much better. So... We have to wait and see here to see exactly what's going to happen on, you know, the mortality and all those sorts of things. We don't know exactly all the different variables that are going into play here. We have, and I've been reading a lot of these this week, there are a lot of quote-unquote studies that are claiming that protests had nothing to do with this change. And I made this point in the newsletter, I've made it in columns. You have to understand the timeline and the incubation period of the virus. It does not happen the same day that you are exposed. So a test does not explain to you what is happening on the day of something that is occurring. There's a delay there. So if you see the spike happening on June 15th, that's telling you what was happening 7 to 10 days earlier, which was at the very height of the protests. And they're still going on. So... You can dismiss them and say that they aren't the main way things are being spread, and I would probably agree with that. These are outdoor events, and most of our evidence right now says that outdoor events are not the main way that the virus is transmitted from one person to another. You typically have to be indoors for that to happen. So I can believe that the protests are not the main transmission point, because that would make sense. Of course, it doesn't make sense if you start comparing the protests to some of these beach parties that are also outside. 
if you're only blaming these beach parties for spreading things and not the protests, you need to have your head checked because the argument for one is the argument for the other. And that's where I think the protests actually come into play here. The protests changed human behavior. We were trying to get new kinds of norms to set up after, you know, we were trying to reopen and trying to get everybody to do all these different things. And so we were trying to get Americans to take on new habits in order to reopen responsibly. And I think what has really happened here is that the protests have tossed all that out the window. At least partially. It has changed how people looked at it and it politicized the various different types of measures that the government wanted people to take in order to keep safe during the coronavirus. So there's that that you have going on. And then you also have the role that temperature plays. Because we had a lot of early studies and a couple of later studies that have come out that have talked about how people wondered if the, the virus responded to warm temperatures and just didn't spread as easily. And it seems like that's not really the case. It's not that the virus is harmed by heat, but rather it's the fact that people are outdoors versus indoors. It is much harder to spread the virus outdoors than it is indoors where everybody is sharing the same air. And what happens in the summer is that in all these southern states, the places where people are saying or are, you know, are seeing the most of the spread, and included L.A. County, so you have Los Angeles, Arizona, Texas, Florida, the southeast. What happens in the summer is that it gets very hot and humid here, and people no longer want to go outdoors. So people start going back indoors. So that would allow for a much easier spread for the virus because everyone is all indoors. So the real corporate here is if you buy into that theory and that temperature somehow affects it, is that it's air conditioning that's the problem here. So you have potentially two things that are that are happening here. You have the summer temperatures, which kick in really high in mid-June, and you also have the protests that are changing human behavior and politicizing the, the things like wearing a mask and social distancing and so on and so forth. So there's not a clean explanation here. Everything could be impacting the other. You have cultural norms. You have, you know, some science here. So there's a lot going on here, and we don't know the real answer. So the only thing you can tell people to do is just to follow the instructions they were given before, and they're not doing that now. So whatever the protest did and whatever air conditioning does, it doesn't really matter because human behavior has changed, and then people do not want to follow these procedures any longer. And until they do, you're just going to see these spikes continue to occur. So we've got a long way to go before we're able to tackle the coronavirus and start changing things around. And we have better tools and we have better medications and everything, but we still have a long way to go. So that's where things stand today. Those are some of the things that are causing the spikes. When we get back, I will wrap up and go through the light item that I have for this week. All right. Like I said at the top of the show, this is testing out sort of a new segment here where I end on something a little bit more lighthearted or just a little bit more light to end the show. So if you like it, send me a note on it and let me know how you like ending on something a little bit more lighted. So 
July 4th was a great holiday for me. I got to go to a state park, swam in the lake, had McDonald's, and saw fireworks. So really, if you add all that together, that's pretty much the most American holiday that you can come up with. The most American version of July 4th, I think you can come up with. There's nothing more American than spending a day at the lake, eating McDonald's, and seeing fireworks. But in that time, it's nice to go out and see and just notice that everyone else is also celebrating too, because there was a there was a story that went viral among all the journalists that I follow, and it was from the Washington Post, and they ran an op-ed arguing that July 4th is problematic. I even had an old friend from college who posted on Instagram that she doesn't celebrate the 4th anymore because it's also a problematic holiday. So you have this happening out here in the ether where you have, you know, these big institutions or these people you knew in college who are saying, oh, the 4th of July is bad. But if you get off social media and you went outside, the park I was at, it was full of people. It was full of people of all races who were all out celebrating. They were all out barbecuing. All languages were being spoken. You could see red, white, and blue everywhere. When we watched the fireworks, we had a view of the entire city where we were, and everyone was setting off fireworks. Everyone in our neighborhood, everyone in the city, everyone outside the city. We kind of have a broad view, and we were able to see a full view of everything, and all. And just everyone was shooting off fireworks and having a good time. It sounded like a war, because you could hear all the booms from the fireworks echoing through the hills everywhere. And I've experienced that before when I, when I was in college in, in Virginia Beach, and you would hear them set off fireworks over the ocean, and you would hear those booms echoing through all of the, the buildings down the shoreline. So it's a very cool experience to hear that and see that. And on a similar note, there was a, there was a video out of Los Angeles where they showed that entire city. They had a helicopter or a plane or something that was up, and it was just exploding fireworks everywhere up in the sky, nonstop, every neighborhood, every city, every road, no matter where you were in LA, there were fireworks going off. And I note this because they also said that they had a citywide ban on fireworks and no one was obviously paying attention because people were very intent on celebrating the holiday and having a good time. So in short, the haters are wrong about July 4th. And no one listens to them, no one cares about what they think, because America is the greatest country on earth, and potentially even the greatest country in history. No, we aren't perfect, but we're trying to get there. And the people who are trying to immigrate here, and trying to join into these celebrations that we have every year, they prove that point, because they come here and they want to celebrate how amazing this country is, too. They prove that point wrong, and so do the people of all political parties who are shooting off fireworks and celebrating, all together, all out, doing the same thing on July 4th. God bless America, and may her light shine on forever, because that was an amazing July 4th, as it is every year. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the content information in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. 
Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.